Genesis 45, 16 through 46, 7. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them, he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father, he sent as follows. 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provisions for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry them. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. This is the word of God. I read once of a family that owned a volume of books, uh, multi-volume books with a nice leather binding and the number of each volume right in the middle of the binding on the spine. One day they noticed the sixth volume was missing. And uh, I don't recall how they reacted, but I was imagining what I would do if I was in that situation, being very puzzled. Where is the sixth volume in this, I would go crazy uh, turning my home upside down trying to find the volume and you'd come across, oh here's that uh, mustache I was looking for three years ago on Halloween and never found and now I don't need but I still can't find, find the, um, the volume of the book and then my paranoid mind would think somebody stole the book. Who would come over to my house and steal the book? And then I would think perhaps, well maybe they didn't steal the book but they borrowed it and didn't tell me. So whatever the case is, Here's this family that has these multi-volume books and the sixth one is missing. And so they've got one, two, three, four, five, seven, eight, and nine. 
And I don't know how they discovered it, but at one point there was the realization there are only eight volumes in this series. And so there is no ninth book. The sixth book was put back upside down. And a letter to the publisher is always put the number on the bottom or the top, not in the middle. And so the sixth book was there all this time, but perhaps um, uh, they didn't, you know, uh, they put it upside down in the gap and then the family member with OCD didn't like that the nine was in the middle and so came and put it on the end and I have no idea how it wound up that, that the volume was at the end, but they realized the sixth volume was never really missing. Uh, but it was. It was missing. They didn't know where it was, and yet it was right there. The story of Joseph is a story about somebody who was lost being found. It's a story about somebody that Jacob thought had died and finding out in this moment that he's alive. And so there's something about this story uh, that's part of this broader theme what we're talking about in the series that we're calling Redemptive Story, it's a story where all sorts of terrible things happen, but by the end, there's a restoration. It's not that every single thing is fixed, but things that have been lost are found. Things that are broken are repaired. And we're looking at a moment where Jacob discovers that the son that he thought for more than 20 years was dead is alive. It's this really profound moment that for Jacob, he has a discovery that all these years he was living in a distorted reality. He thought that his son was gone, not just lost, but permanently lost. And now we're looking at a passage where he discovers that his son has been found, he's been located, he's alive. And and the story continues on towards a healing in the family and towards prosperity, but we're moving along and we're just recognizing at this point uh, or reflecting on the experience of what it's like um, to have loss because all of us are wired, for the most part, to want gain, to want uh, progress, to want advance. In most cases, we want... Uh, not to lose things, but to gain things, with certain exceptions. Maybe you would prefer to lose weight than gain weight. Uh, maybe there are some exceptions to the categories, but most of us want an increase in life, and yet the world is filled with losses, sometimes major and terrible, without any explanation or real understanding, sometimes uh, just the, the, the typical losses that, that come over time. And loss is very difficult. It's difficult for people to understand and to, marriage, uh, to manage, to stay encouraged during. Uh, so this last year has been a year of loss, uh, or more than a year, a year and a half. Uh, COVID has caused a lot of devastation, a lot of loss. The loss of life, the loss of health, the loss of finances and security. And that's made it a very difficult year. And yet, for many at our church, the losses have not been so severe. For some, they have, but for many, they haven't. And so this year feels just like a year where you just have to get through it. But from an opportunity cost perspective, okay, so, um, yeah, did we lose two Christmases or two Easter's as a church? Or did you lose a year and a half of being able to see close family or to touch one another? 
you know, day by day we get by, but you don't realize by the end of this year, even if it went relatively well, it was a year of loss, lost opportunities at the least. All the good we could have been doing that we didn't do because we were stuck at home and separated. But then compounding out from that, people who lost relationships or lost uh, their health. How do we get through it? Well, the Bible doesn't say it's, it'll be easy or there are certain answers where if you just do the right things, you'll never have to face it. The Bible pulls us into a framework that turns things upside down. Uh, that says that actually if you start to see what's, what God is doing and understand this world a little bit differently, it's not that everything will go perfectly, but you will experience loss differently because you will always have hope for a future that God has set before you. And so you can keep going and you can see that in the midst of it sometimes that God is at work doing great things. And at times you can't see it. But when you learn to hope in God, you recognize if you stick through it, um, God will have used it somehow in some redemptive way in your life or in the life of others. We don't always know. Um, but so this moment here in verse 28, uh, for, verse 26 of chapter 45, the announcement of these brothers, they come and they say, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over the land of Egypt. That's a life-changing moment. That's a turnaround moment for Jacob that he'd been living a certain reality. And if this is true... His whole reality has changed. As we look at the story today, I want to talk about three of the different themes from the book of Genesis that this story ties to. But they're major biblical themes, so it ties also to the, the broader themes, themes of Scripture. And, and they help us understand in a life, in a world where there's constant loss, how we could keep going with sufficient hope that that on the other side of it, we will be okay. And the first theme that I want to talk about is death and life. Life and death. That's a major theme in Genesis. It, it, the Bible opens up, the first book is Genesis, with the theme of life. God, his unique power is that he could create from nothing. He can give life to that which does not have life. It's something only God can do. The Bible begins with life. And if God is the giver of life and the one who sustains our lives, then early on in Genesis when humanity, Adam and Eve, turn from God, it makes sense that if you're turning from the one who gives and sustains life, you are turning from life itself. You're giving up life. You're on the path towards death. And we find that Genesis then follows this trajectory out that goes through the Bible of, of life and death and the constant invitation to life and the constant warnings about death. Uh, the story of Jacob in this moment is about a radical turnaround, uh, not the turnaround that normally happens in this world where we hear that the living have died. But outside of births, we don't hear much about life coming from nothing. And Jacob gets this message that his son is alive. And even in the way the story is told, it's told with echoes of a resurrection in Jacob himself. In chapter 45, verses 26 to 27, now keep in mind, uh, if you were here last week, when Judah is trying to convince Joseph not to keep Benjamin, he says, my father is old and he's frail. And the news that Benjamin is not coming back could be enough to kill him. 
And so the concern is that Jacob is so frail that he could have a heart attack with bad news. And I don't know that anybody gave thought to what the impact of the news that Joseph is alive would have, because it's good news. Isn't good news always just wonderful and easy? Verse 26, speaking of Jacob, his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. Could you imagine this news coming? The son, your favorite son, who you thought for more than 20 years was dead, is alive. (laughs) And it's described as though his heart stops, as though he died right there in that moment. This is impossible. He's hit with unbelief. What on earth are you talking about? But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. It's a, it's a picture that has echoes of a death and a resurrection, this news that stuns him like he has a heart attack in that moment. And he wakes up out of his unbelief and taking steps towards the, that, the fact that this might be true. It says his spirit revived within him. Now, this is not an actual resurrection, even if he experiences it as a transfer from life to death. And there's not a miracle with Joseph being declared alive. But in the story, for Jacob's experience, it's a miracle. His fundamental truth was, my son is gone forever. And now that fundamental truth has changed. Life from the dead, the announcement, Jacob, Joseph is alive. There's a sense of resurrection in this. And like many stories where death is very easy to believe because it's so normal. But life, resurrection, (laughs) uh, that's for fantasies. That's for fairy tales, the kinds of things we tell ourselves because we want hope. Jacob doesn't believe them. And, you know, we have in these two verses the, the news, but I can imagine This was a story that unfolded over hours, perhaps even days. And could you imagine if you fill in the blanks when these brothers had to explain, how do we convince our father that Joseph is alive? You know, when Joseph sends the brothers back, he tells them, don't quarrel. I don't know why he said that. But you could imagine the brothers realizing when we go and tell our father Joseph is alive, there's going to need to be some explanation (laughs) And in between Jacob saying, I don't believe it, and our text telling us he started to believe it, might have been the brothers saying, well, here's how we know he's alive, because when we told you that he was dead, we were lying. Could you imagine that moment in the family for Jacob to hear that his beloved son is alive and to find out the reason he thought that he was dead was because his other sons lied to him and perpetuated a lie for years, such that the news that Joseph is now alive and is, has power and authority and in, is inviting you to come and save, uh, come to you to be saved, Jacob doesn't have the categories to believe in. And, and that's the way this world is organized. That's one of the things that the Bible says we need to get a perspective on death because death communicates something to you that is not fully true. But what do we know about death? And so for Christians, the fact that Jesus was died is not that Jesus died is not a hard claim to convince people of. To tell people Jesus was rejected and crucified, there's always going to be somebody that doesn't believe anything, but 
Sure, that could be made up, but it doesn't sound like it's made up. This happens all the time, that people are condemned, people are killed. That's not hard to believe. Now, what happened in that moment, that his death was for forgiveness, that through the death of Jesus, there's a reconciliation that's radical. Maybe that's hard to believe, but that Jesus died, not hard to believe. But how do we know Jesus' death did something? Because he was raised. Now, that's a little hard to believe. Jesus, who was crucified, was raised from the dead. And yes, all of us have the potential to struggle, maybe some more than others. And, and so for Jacob, what did he have? Jacob had a message. Joseph came to tell you he's alive, and they had evidence. <laughs> Look at all this prosperity. You sent us a, a family increasing in poverty to Egypt during a famine. How would we come back with donkeys loaded up with clothing and food and grain? It doesn't make sense. What we're telling you is Joseph has given this to you. And so, so Jacob needs to grapple with, I don't see Joseph, I don't hear Joseph, I've been told Joseph is dead, and now you're telling me he's invited me to Egypt, and this is the evidence. And then you read the Gospels, and, and the disciples have that, that as well. We have a message from angels. Jesus is not here, he's not in the tomb, he's alive. But what evidence is there? The tomb is empty. He was put in it, the stone was rolled in front of it, he's not there. It's a lot easier to believe that he was crucified than to believe that he got up and came out of the tomb. But then he appears to people, and he's living and active in the world, giving evidence of his reality. And yet for most of us, death is so clear and compelling that we don't need to be convinced that Jesus died. But the possibility that he's alive, boy, that's a, a hard pill to swallow. And yet, what does it say about our world that death is the most compelling fundamental reality? As Christians, sometimes we think we need, to, we need to tell people about sin and death because they don't believe it. People intuitively know that human beings are not good enough and that we die. It's just so terrible that in order to exist with that reality, we have to construct uh, stories that help us cope with it distorted stories, because if death is not the ultimate end, then we're building stories that aren't true, just like Jacob has had to build a life around thinking his beloved son was dead. It wasn't true. And now his entire relationship with his sons, you could imagine how many conversations where the sons would have to say something a little bit strange to, to move away from the, the truth of what had happened. And for all of us, we know that death is before us. There's no denying that. And yet it's something so terrible that to live in the existence uh, with the awareness of that, we have, to, we have to tell another story. Well, it's far off, and I don't need to worry about it now, or it's not a big deal, or it's natural. And yet we construct our whole realities around this one fact, where the thing about death is because it's darkness, no matter how much, you know, if you decide, I'm not going to deny death, and I'm not going to avoid it, I'm going to stare it square in the face, but because it's darkness, no matter how much you look into the darkness, you won't learn more about death. What we have is a message from God, the giver of life, who says, I will tell you how to think about death and whether or not the soul goes on after that. And I will tell you what is possible for those of you who will trust me. But the argument we often make, because people are in denial, is we need to convince people that they're going to die and that sin is terrible. I don't know that we need to convince people of that. I think we need to deconstruct the fabrications that we make around the fact that we're not dealing with the reality that none of us 
is upright, all of us will die, and if the soul goes on, few of us are ready for it. And so the compelling thing is not that we will die or that Jesus has died. <laughs> That's the easy thing to believe. The hard thing is to bear witness to the fact that, that God turns things around because the world has been turned upside down. Death is not meant to be normative. Death is terrible. And God is going to deal with death by turning things around, by raising Jesus from the dead. It's not easy to believe, but if it's true, it not only changes how we conceive of death, but it reorients how we conceive of life, of everything in this world, and how we experience loss. Are we just losing things? Are we inevitably dying because every loss is an echo of death? Are we just passing the time until everything is stripped from us until we have nothing left? How do you not conclude that? By our observation of the world. But if the testimony of God is true, then when we lose things, but we're told, trust me, and there will be a restoration, not a one-to-one -one correlation, the wallet you lost in high school may not be returned to you, but you're not going to need that credit card from 1984. But in the future, there will be a renewal, a restoration, a returning that will make sense of this life. If that is true, and that's the witness of Scripture, then there's a realigning, a reimagining of life in this world. And so, first theme, life and death. Second theme that I want to talk about from Genesis that this moment ties into is the theme of promise and place. Promise and place. You know, the book of Genesis has these sort of generations with echoes of the same kind of story. Abraham is the start of God's great promise. In Abraham's life, there was a famine. And what did Abraham do during that famine? He had to go to Egypt. And there's this weird story where he tells that Sarah is his sister. <laughs> and then Isaac lives in a famine. And God appears to Isaac and says, all, repeats all of the promises to Abraham. Isaac, the promises I made to your father, that your descendants will be many, that I will bring you into a land, uh, that you will bless all nations. He says to Isaac, I'm still going to do those things, but don't go to Egypt. So instead, Isaac goes to the Philistines, and he tells Abimelech that his wife is his sister. And now here's Jacob. <laughs> And there's a famine. And he has to go to Egypt. And he has this tension. He has just found out that his son, his beloved son, is alive. And his son invites him, come and live with me. What does Jacob want more than anything? Verse 45, 28. Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. He's old and he's frail, maybe afraid that he may not make the journey, but it's worth it. If I could see Joseph before I die, that's what he wants. But it raises a hint of a theological problem, which is God has promised that the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would be numerous in this particular land. <laughs> so what happens if Jacob so much wants to see Joseph and he leaves the land? Will the promise be broken? 
And the promise has always seemed impossible. It seemed impossible to Abraham when he was told, your descendants will be many. And Abraham said, but my wife and I are old and we can't have children. How will this be? And the promise seemed impossible to Isaac, who received the promise, but his father believed he was supposed to sacrifice him. And now we have echoes of an issue, which is if Joseph and his sons leave and make Egypt their land, how on earth will God fulfill his promise to make them a nation not, not a, a colony of Egypt, but a people who fulfilled the promise to Abraham and Isaac in this land. And so Jacob goes because he wants to see Joseph. And he goes willing to die along the way. And God appears to him. Jacob begins by worshiping. It says in chapter 46, verse 2, Israel took his journey with all that he had and he came to Beersheba. Now this is before there was a Domino's pizza in Beersheba. And he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And so there he is, in the midst of this famine, taking all that he has. And he worships God in the same place that his father, Abraham, his grandfather, did. And God spoke to him, verse 2, to Israel in visions of the night. Now, it's interesting. Joseph has dreams. Dreams are somewhat uncommon in the Bible. And if you look at the stories where there are dreams... They're often stories of God's people engaging with the surrounding world, the surrounding culture. Jacob has visions. Abraham had a vision. Visions are different. The dream is just something that God makes known that needs to be interpreted. God speaks to Israel, just as he spoke to Abraham and Isaac. In visions of the night, and he said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Now, what is he afraid of? He might be afraid that he's going to die along the way. And so God says, Joseph will close your eyes. But in verse 4, he says, I will also bring you up again. And so whether or not Jacob was afraid of the promise being broken, maybe he was just afraid he would get there and not see Jacob, Joseph. The reader is told, don't be afraid. <laughs> you will go, but you will come back. The promise is not going to be broken. And so he's the God of your father, he's told. Um, you know, the promise of God is about a place. It's about a reality. You will go to Egypt, but one day you will come back. Now, in Jacob's day... Uh, what, what Jacob may not have understood is that he would go back, but he would not go back alive. Jacob dies in Egypt, not at the end of this journey, but he lives maybe another 17 years. But when he dies, his brothers take him, and they bring him back, and they bury him in the cave of Abraham and Sarah, of Isaac and Rebekah. And who else do you think is in the cave? Leah. Where's Rachel, his beloved wife? After giving birth to Benjamin, she died. She's somewhere near Bethlehem. That sounds like it could be important one day, right? But Jacob thinks the promise is coming through Joseph. He winds up with Leah, the mother of Judah. And so there's this story in terms of what Jacob thinks will happen is like with Abraham and Isaac, is not what's going to happen, but God is going to do something greater. And Joseph goes to Egypt and he lives and he thrives. Jacob goes to Egypt. He lives, he thrives, and he dies. But the promise for descendants 
and nations and a place are fulfilled by God. Jacob will go back to Egypt 15 to 20 years later and be buried there. His descendants, his 12 sons, will go back about 400 years later. This is a long, complicated story, but the book of Exodus tells us about the fulfillment of that promise that one day, when God says to Jacob, you will go to Egypt and you will come back, he fulfilled the promise to, to Jacob, but he also fulfilled the promise to Israel. And if you notice in this story, there are two names that keep going back and forth. He's Israel and he's Jacob. He's Jacob, the problematic person, the human being who swindled his brother and lied to his father, who tricked his father-in-law, who spent his life fleeing, who spent his life receiving uh, the penalties of all of his misdeeds. Jacob is not a hero. He's not an honorable person. But he's somebody who contended with God. He wrestles with God, and after years of running, he finally has a reconciliation with his brother, and before that, he stops to worship. <laughs> and he wrestles with God, and God changes his name. You're no longer Jacob, but you're Israel. So Jacob's greatness is not because of him and what he accomplished. He hasn't earned the right to be the father of many nations. But despite his failings, God continues the promise to Abraham by giving him a new name. So Jacob will go back to, to the land of Canaan, but so will Israel, the singular person, but all of his descendants. And that's important because the New Testament doesn't talk about land, but it talks about place. Jesus, before he dies, I'm going ahead to prepare a place for you. See, the promise is not, it's not simply a philosophy. It's not simply a coping mechanism. It's not a way of constructing a way of denying death and suffering. The promise is that God will always do what human beings cannot do. He will give life to the dead. He will bless the unworthy. He will give a new name to those who contend and wrestle with God. But he's going to do it. And it's always going to be clear that it was him and not us. And so Jesus goes ahead, not so that he will give us something hopeful, so we could be kind and happy people, but he prepares a place for us so that we're told death does not have to be the end, but death is not a transition into darkness and a descent into the ground. But it's a, it's a move into what God has next. There's a lot there that's hard to understand, hard to believe, but if it's true, then loss in this life is put in perspective, isn't it? Whether it's losing a wallet, losing a job, losing our health, losing a loved one. Some of these are much worse than others. Some of them are very hard to make sense of. And there are sometimes things that you can say, this is not good. I don't, I don't see how good could come out of this. But what we're told is not that everything happens because it's good but God will not neglect the promise to hold a place for you. And in that place, there will, be, there will be a restoration, there will be a healing, there will be a fulfillment over the ages and generations to show God's wisdom that in this broken world, despite all of our mistakes, there's a new name. There's a place of rest. There is peace. And so Jacob, in this moment, uh, has to grapple with this promise and he so wants to see J Joseph, and he's told, go and see him. 
I will play my part in fulfilling the promise. And so that leads to the last theme from Genesis that I want to look at today, which, which is the theme of providence and redemption. Providence and redemption. Providence, the idea that God is not just a, a mystical energy force, or he didn't just make the world and then go on to other cosmos and every now and then he checks back in on us, but, but he governs all that happens. He's actively engaged in the world and he's engaged in a good and redemptive way. That somehow the work that he's doing now, the work that he's always done, is part of what God is doing for the healing of the world, the restoring of what's broken, the, the reversing of death. And so in ver- chapter 46, verse 3, God says to Jacob, I am the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. And the promise of, uh, you know, it's this weird story. You're going to go to Egypt, and actually my plan to fulfill the promises of, to Abraham is, for, is that, that the family won't grow in Canaan, and actually you won't grow square in the middle of Cairo or Memphis or whatever modern places there would be, but you'll be off to the side somewhere out there in Egypt growing and prospering. And at some point you will grow to be not just a family but a great nation. And then I will bring you into the land. He says, there I will make you into a great nation. And then I will bring you back. And there's echoes in the biblical story of Genesis 2 where where God takes the dirt and he forms Adam. And then he places Adam in a garden and says, now be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth from this place. And he takes Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans. And he places him in Canaan and says, now be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and from here go and bless the nations. Jacob thinks he's simply going to see his son Joseph. But God tells him, I'm going so that there I will make a nation of you. And then I will take this nation and I will bring it into this land. And from this land, flowing with milk and honey, you are to then go out and bless all the nations. And so in verse 4 of 46, he says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hands shall close your eyes. So Jacob, you will see him. Joseph will close your eyes. But here's something I'm going to say about you, but here's something I'm going to say about Israel. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. It's that redemptive story to say somehow in all of this midst of the, the midst of these lying brothers of envy and jealousy of a, of a failing father and a broken family, God is not simply going to make them rich, although that is what's happening, but he's going to take them through another period of suffering where they get big enough that no longer a family and starting to become a nation, the Pharaoh that doesn't remember Joseph hundreds of years later, decides to persecute and try to kill them, God himself will bring them out. There's a land, there's a place, and God will fulfill what he has promised. And this idea of, of trusting God, um, you see it in many places in the Bible. Uh, you have a rich ruler who asks Jesus about the kingdom, and, and Jesus has this really hard teaching about selling everything that you have, give up everything that you have, And the disciples say, 
you know, if it's impossible for this rich man, because that's what Jesus says, it is harder for a camel, harder for a rich man to go, oh, well, I've got it confused in my head. There's the camel in the eye of the needle and the rich man. Really hard for both of them. I'm a little distracted, so I've got, uh, I've forgotten the order, but look it up. The idea is it's really hard. And so the disciples think if it's hard for the rich, because these, in a modern society, we say, down with the rich. Of course he's not going to make it. But most cultures, most societies, if the rich are the people that have it together, if they're wise and if God has blessed them and they've prospered, if, if he won't make it, how will any of us? And Jesus says to the disciples, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And then Peter says, but we've left everything. And Jesus says, those who have left fathers, mothers, brothers, homes, land, I will restore hundredfold eternal life in the kingdom. And there's this turning around where, where he basically says, look, you know, the, the way the world looks at things that says the rich, of course they're the ones that are valuable. They're the ones that they succeed in this world, they'll succeed in the kingdom. And God turns it around and says, not necessarily. We value that, but that's not what God values. And so if you want to know about the kingdom, you have to turn things upside down. That person's valuable not because of what they own, but because of who God has made them to be. So the poor don't have less of a chance of heaven. They have as much as anybody. It's God alone. And what do you value? What are the things that you run after? It's turned around. The things that everyone values, Jesus turns upside down and says, don't run after those things. Let them go. You don't need them. Life is not in them. And it's, an, it's a hard teaching for Jesus to tell us that. Be prepared to give up everything. But it's not something that Jesus himself doesn't, doesn't do because the reversal is about God coming and turning the world over. And he does it through the ultimate redemptive story, which is that Jesus will be sent out of the place, out of the heavenly realms where there's power, honor, and glory. And he will be sent to seek and to save that which was lost. And he will come to this earth and he will invite people and say, I am calling you out of death and I'm promising you life. And you now need to understand things differently. You need to trust me. There's nothing you can do. You can't save yourself. You can't earn your salvation. Or you can't build the best life possible until you die and hope that that's the best existence. But I have left everything. I have come with no possessions, with no honor. I've come announcing a kingdom that people don't believe is true. I've come with signs that the power of the Father is with me. But I've also come to give myself away. I've come to lose everything. I've come to lose my own life by suffering shame and death on the cross so that you will gain life by trusting in me. And it's that reversal that turns life around that says this is, there's nothing you could do for yourself but the plan of God is he will send Jesus here to make a people. And then Jesus will go ahead and one day the people on this earth that have been made alive by his spirit, he will bring into his kingdom with fullness. And so it's the way God does things. God sends people into a hard, difficult place and he is with them and he helps them and he sustains them and he uses them to bear witness to him. But he prepares a place and makes it possible that what seems impossible for us, which is one day in this world, there are some things we should be glad to lose even though we're foolish enough not to recognize that. Sometimes God prunes us in ways that we hate, but we look back and say, thank you, Lord. That was an idol that was destroying me. There are things that are good that sometimes go. We have to spend our whole lives saying, I don't know why. But what we're told is in this world where, 
where the pattern is death. God has come to turn things upside down. And so God is not lost. Heaven is not a fiction. Death is not the ultimate reality. The life that we construct around the only thing that we know is guaranteed is death. That's the fiction. That's the hopelessness. That's what keeps every loss from being an inevitable sign that we're dying. When Jesus turns things around, he gives you a new name and a new identity and a new experience. He comes and he says, you're not a nine. You're a six. You're not a miserable sinner with a hopeless existence. But you're off there at the end of the stack of books and Jesus is taking you out and he's turning you around and he's putting you back in your place. And when you're there, when you're gathered with God's people, when you have that hope, then what we're told is all of life turns around. When Jesus says, be prepared to lose everything, we think, I have to choose misery. Jesus is saying, I'm going to change the angle so that you start to see you have been choosing misery. I'm now helping you to choose life. I'm actually showing you the better way. I'm, I'm reorienting you to this world. And so, so the church is a community that bears witness to life, that fights the culture of death. And so you as an individual are called to turn your life around. You're not going to understand the resurrection until you look and you see Jesus died first and then he was raised and you look at that and you realize, I'm going to die first but then I'm going to be raised. See, the pattern is we live and then we die. God says there's a different pattern. Trust Jesus and his promise. You die. And then you will really live. And if that's true, it's not an escape. But it finally makes sense of why Jesus tells us to pray that God's will would be done on earth as in heaven because that's our place. That's, that's where we belong. We don't belong here in this temporary place during a famine. But God's promise is one day he will go to the, we will go to the place he prepared. So right now we live as citizens of that place, which means death is not our ultimate reality, our ultimate desire. We don't accept it. But we hope in life. We declare life. We call people to life. And when people are self-destructive and harmful, we live on earth as we believe we will in heaven. And we don't live according to the patterns of this world. We don't perpetuate lies but we turn things around and speak the truth. We don't ignore the cries of the poor, but we turn things around and we take the things that are rightly ours and we recognize we don't need them and we generously share them. There's a whole reorientation of life to say, I'm no longer going to live a hopeless, pathetic life, but God has turned my life around. He's given me a new name. He sent a spirit in me. He's revived me. And if I've been revived... I could face loss in this world. I'm not going to love it. I'm not going to want it. I'm going to pray that God would protect me and would provide more and would spare things being taken away. Christians are normal people. But Christians have a whole new orientation to say loss may be good and sometimes it may not be good. Um, but the promise of God is always good. And whatever is, is being lost now Somehow, in the resurrection, the renewal of all things, there will be a restoration so we will see the wisdom, the faithfulness, the kindness of God. And so, friends, we're, we're in a, a demoralizing period, a hard period. We're in a period that we've, we've lost a lot, and it may continue for another period. And once we're out of this, the next crisis will come. But we don't need to be afraid. 
That's God's word to Jacob. Don't be afraid. I will go with you, and I will bring you out. If that's true, it doesn't mean life is easy. It doesn't mean you know every decision to make. But it means that loss is put in a certain perspective to say, I, I could get through this. There's hope on the other side. This is not the end. I, could, I can do this, not because I'm good enough, not because I've earned it, but God is faithful to what he has promised. He's a God who gives life to the dead. He's a God who gives a place to those who he has promised it to. He's a life. He's a God who redeems those for whom he's currently providing. For let me pray for us. Our Father, we are assembled today as a people who are filled with doubt, fear, skepticism. It comes from our own guilt. It comes from simply living in a world that confuses us, that has convinced us that the truest story is that we are not enough, that this world is all there is. And Lord, how many times we give in to that. We use that to excuse our foolish deeds. We, we join with the things we know are wrong because it seems that's the best way to do things. Lord, uh, turn our lives around. I pray for each of us as individuals. We pray for us as a church. We pray for our world. Lord, bear witness with signs, with direction, with interpretation <laughs> to the words that you have promised, that you've shown to your people of old, that you are a God who gives life. And Lord, we pray that uh, in our assembly, in our gathering today, all of us would have that life working its way into us so that those who are grieving, those who are struggling, those who are discouraged, those uh, in our community who know loss tangibly would have your hope, your comfort. We pray for restoration to begin now, Lord. You are a healer now. You are a God who gives now. You are a God who encourages now. We pray for it. But we pray with faith that having prayed today, you won't fail in your promise to show kindness to us. So fill us with your spirit so that we would walk in that newness of life this week, that we would be bold and wise, and that we would live on earth as we believe we will in heaven. Help us with that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.